uh, Matthew 21, and we're going to read from verse 23. It's on page 826 of the Church Bibles, uh, 826, and we're going to read from verse 21. Uh, we're in Jerusalem. We're actually within the last week of Jesus' life, uh, and he's in the temple. In all the action, almost until he's arrested, really, takes place now in the temple courts. So we'll pick up uh, the story from verse 23. Let's hear the word of the Lord God. And when he, Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I'll also ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then also I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we pray for the, the great gift of belief, uh, of faith. Uh, you tell us elsewhere that faith comes through hearing the word. So in your mercy, pour your spirit on us, on preacher and listener alike, uh, that we might be given this great gift of believing all that you have to say. We ask in your own name. Amen. Uh, Sunday mornings, I usually get up and go for a bit of a walk before the, before the children wake up. Uh, this morning, I, I went out the door and uh, across the road and the, the, the kind of little back road opposite me that leads to the park. Um, one of the houses had pulled out their wheelie bin and on the back of the wheelie bin um, was a sign. It looked quite official, but it clearly ultimately had been homemade. It was one of those kind of red triangles and it said road closed temporarily. And I walked straight past it. Why? Well, why would I listen? Uh, why would I listen uh, to the man who lives at number 32? Uh, he clearly has no authority just to unilaterally shut roads. I'm pretty sure you can't do that, can you? Okay, if you decide your road's a bit busy, you just wheel your bin out into the middle of it, draw on it, road temporarily closed, and then have done with it. Well, of course not. He's got no authority. And we don't like being told what to do by people who don't have authority over us. And in a sense, that's right, isn't it? If someone isn't in authority, why should we listen to them? I don't think I did anything massively wrong by evading his wheelie bin and carrying on down the road. And yet, even when people have right authority over us, we, we chafe under it, don't we? 
Uh, we like to think we're masters of our own fate. Uh, we are at the helm of the ship. We decide where we go. Uh, my wife showed me a little, um, I think it was on Instagram, a meme or a picture or something the other day, um, about November. Okay. And the emphasis was on the no. Uh, and the sort of text underneath, I can't remember exactly, but the text underneath essentially said, use this month, November, to say no more often. The idea was, you, you should do what you want. Not what other people ask you to do, not burdens they put on you. You put yourself first. Okay, November. It's a pretty picture of what we're like, isn't it? Okay, most of us don't need an invitation to put ourselves first. Okay, we don't need to take a month of the year to really focus on putting ourselves above others. But for most of us, it comes all too naturally. And this, this part of Matthew's gospel, and particularly the preaching of Jesus here, is all about the idea of authority. And all, idea, all about the idea of Jesus having authority over us. So really, I think he wants to ask us two questions this morning. And the first is this. What's not clear? What's not clear? Okay, I think that's the first thing that Jesus is saying to us this morning through this passage. What's not clear? What have I not been clear about? Let's look at verses 23 uh, to 27 for this. Uh, it's the Tuesday of the week uh, in which Jesus is going to die. So Friday, he is nailed to the cross as day night. He's arrested. This is the Tuesday. And again, he's, a, he, he's in the temple uh, teaching. And the chief priests, verse 23, the elders of the people, so the religious officials, uh, are unimpressed. What gives you the right to do these things, they say? Who gave you this authority? Now, what are these things? What are these things that Jesus supposedly doesn't have the authority to do? Well, if you sort of flick your eye over what's just happened, uh, even just um, in chapter 21, uh, there's a whole number of things, a whole pile of things. First of all, Jesus has risen in, uh, ridden in, sorry, not risen, risen yet, because he hasn't died yet. He's ridden in, oh, I can't say it. He, he rode into <laughs> Jerusalem uh, on this donkey, the triumphal entry. He has come as a king. What gives you the authority to arrive in a kind of kingly procession? They're asking. It's like getting out of the presidential limo or, or stepping out of the queen's carriage. What gives you a right to come like this, to claim to be a king? Uh, he's also accepted the praise of children uh, as, he, as he rode into Jerusalem. Uh, the children cry out in verse 9 and 10, Hosanna to the son of David. Uh, in fact, the whole crowds cry out in verse 9 and 10. And a bit later, the children join in the cry in verse 17. It's a cry to, to rescue. It means rescue me. Okay, Hosanna, save me. Please save me. And Jesus accepted the, the, the cry of these, the crowd and the children. In other words, he's accepted praise. And he's accepted a call to be a, a rescuer, a saviour. He's got that identity of king, that identity of saviour. And then even more, perhaps staggeringly, uh, as we looked at uh, last week, uh, he's totally overthrown the religious system of the day. He went into the temple and turned over the, the, the tables, caused chaos. Verse 21 and verse 22. Uh, he's promised his disciples, uh, if you have faith and do not doubt, you've not only done what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. What was Jesus saying to them? He's saying to them, look, this mountain, okay, he's, he means this mountain, okay, the mountain which the, the, the temple is on, you're going to overthrow it, disciples. Okay, your apostles who are going to be the founders of the, the, the church, 
You want to overthrow this whole religious system that has become so totally corrupt, where, where people have to pay an enormous amount of money to the religious leaders in order to be able to get into the temple and worship, where the, the ordinary people are being exploited. You're going to be able to throw it to the depths of the sea. Things being thrown into the sea is a sort of Old Testament picture for judgment. And through the work of the apostles, that is what will happen, their prayers. This whole religious system is going to be overturned, just as I overturned the, temp- the, the tables, says Jesus, but they were put back a few days later. We all know overthrow the whole system. The temple will come down. Jesus is totally overhauling their religious system. How, by what right? Say the elders, the chief priests. Okay, this is, you know, imagine you're in Buckingham Palace, one of the, I think it's the summer months, they open them up and you can go on tours of Buckingham Palace. You're on one of those tour parties and, and someone strides into the room and says, right, I want the, the curtains to be changed. Okay, I'd rather they were blue than, than red. I think we'll repaint the room, the room um, um, green. And by what right? What gives you the authority to do these things? Essentially, they're saying to Jesus, who says? Who do you think you are? And it's easy to critique them because we know they're the bad guys. And we, but, but actually, it, it, we forget the shock of what was going on. Here was a guy who, who presumably sounded not particularly impressive in human terms. He was from the north. Okay? He had a northern accent. Okay? Okay, so he's, he's a Geordie okay? or a Scouser or something like that. Yeah, there's that accent. That, that sometimes, if you've got a posh accent like me, you don't take those sort of people seriously, wrongly. Okay. So he's, he's sounding like a northerner. He's got a perfectly normal name, Yeshua, Joshua. And suddenly the, ki- the, the kids are, are running around the centre of the religious system, running around the, the, the great church, as it were, saying, hey, we're all going to worship Joshua now. You can see how the elders begin to think, hold on. What's going on here? They're wrong, of course they're wrong. But it would have been a shock. And so Jesus goes into this question of authority. Uh, they say, who says? Why should we listen to you? And Jesus asks a question in return. Do you see that? Uh, verse 24. I will ask one question. And if you tell me the answer, well, I'll tell you by what authority. The baptism of John, from where does it come? Heaven or earth? Okay, from man or from God, in other words. Now, he's not distracting there. Okay, it's not a bit of like, you know, sort of... Um, news programs where the, the, the news anchor asks a question of a politician and they change the subject. He's not changing the subject. He's not trying to evade the question. Rather, he's trying to reveal to them what's actually going on. Okay, the question behind the question. He's trying to get them to see themselves. So this baptism of John the Baptist, said Jesus, is it, is it, does it come with God's stamp of authority? Or was he a fake? Now, John the Baptist... Uh, as many of you will know, was the, the sort of forerunner, the last great figure before Jesus. Now, we're not going to turn to all the passages now, but if we were to look earlier in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, we'd see him arrive on the scene dressed um, like an Old Testament prophet, dressed like Elijah, in fact. And the last prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi, had said one day someone like Elijah will turn up and then after him, God will appear in the temple. So John the Baptist is Elijah-like figure. It turns up, and then who comes after him? Well, Jesus. So John's ministry effectively said, the one who comes after me is going to be God coming to the temple. And here is Jesus coming to the temple. In Malachi, we were warned that when God turned, come, came to his temple, that there'd be judgment. And what has Jesus done as he kept, comes to the temple? He's overthrown the, temp, the, the, the tables, driven out the moneylenders. A sign of judgment. 
Uh, John has also said that this Saviour will forgive your sins. He's pointed to Jesus as the Lamb of God. Uh, This God who comes to the temple won't just be coming to condemn, but to offer forgiveness, to be the Lamb of God, the one who dies, lays down his life for you if you'll come to him. And John has gone down well. That's a problem for the chief priests. Uh, They take a timeout, don't you? You know, in sports matches every now and again, um, you you can sort of signal a timeout. You get get everyone together, you gather together. Let's have a chat about this. Uh, That's what they do. Uh, Let's talk, they say to themselves. Uh, Verse 25. And they realise they're stuck. Whichever way they go, they're stuck. Uh, They could say that John was from, from heaven. In other words, he was a real prophet. He was one of God's true spokesmen. But they realise if we say that, and John said that Jesus was both the Lamb of God to take away our sins and God in the flesh, then we'll have to acknowledge Jesus. We'll have to accept that he is right to do these things, to overthrow our religion, to criticise us. We can't do that. On the other hand, if we say John was a fraud, an imposter, do you see what they're worried about? Verse 26. If we say he's from man, well, we're afraid of the crowd because they all think he was a prophet. Now, what's the one thing they're not trying to do? Okay, what's the one thing they're really not wrestling with when they go into their little huddle for a discussion? See what it is? The one thing they're not talking about is, what's the right answer? What's the truth? It's interesting, isn't it? They're not interested in the truth. They're just interested in getting off the dilemma. In other words, Jesus' question is aimed to make them see themselves more clearly. Uh, To make them realise that actually fundamentally their problem isn't with the clarity of John's ministry or the clarity of who Jesus is, but with their total refusal to accept that he has authority over them. Uh, What they want is to stay in charge. And if they give a clear answer to Jesus' question, they'll lose. They'll lose that authority. They'll lose the right to be in charge. If they say John the Baptist is right, then they'll have to say Jesus is in charge. If they say he's wrong, well, they're going to lose all their credibility and authority with the crowd. What Jesus is doing is making clear that their commitment, first and foremost, is to their own independence, to maintaining their own religion. You simply don't want me to be in charge, in other words, of Jesus. There's nothing wrong with the evidence. There's nothing wrong with the ministry. God has made all this perfectly clear. In fact, in the next parable we'll look at next week, uh, he'll even push further and say, you actually know full well who I am. Your problem is not with the, the evidence, but with the fact you simply don't want me to be king, to be saviour. You want to be in charge. If you're someone who's, who's new to church things and wouldn't call yourself a Christian, if, if you honestly ask yourself the question, why is it that I'm, I'm not willing? I'm not willing to say, yep, Jesus, I need you to rescue me and I want you to be my Lord. What is the answer? Is it honestly that you have deep intellectual questions that haven't been answered? I mean, it's good to ask those questions. Christianity's got nothing to hide. You may have questions, science and, and religion, suffering and why God allows it. But there are answers. Uh, you can see that from the, uh, the way that some of the, the brightest people in our university systems, some of the most eminent scientists are Christians, and some are not. 
The problem isn't brain power, in other words. There are answers. It's not a question of just sheer intellect. Our problem isn't that it isn't clear, it's that we don't want it to be true. I've got a friend, uh, uh, he, he um, has got young children, and um, the, the boy was, was picking on his sister um, just before church, friends of minister, uh, and, and so uh, the dad pulled, them, pulled, pulled the boy apart and said, look, do you understand, okay, do you understand this kind of behaviour is not acceptable? Okay, we, you mustn't treat your sister like that. Do you understand? And he said, he's about four at the time, I don't want to understand. <laughs> that, that is very honest. Okay? That's a promising young lad. Okay? But, but that's what we're all like. It's not that he didn't understand. He doesn't want to understand. Because if I understand, if I understand I'll have to change. Uh, one of the sort of leading atheist writers of the early 20th century, a guy called Aldous Huxley, uh, he said this, for myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. What's he saying? This, our whole philosophy is writing these clever atheist, um, atheistic sort of works, philosophy of meaninglessness, trying to say that there's no meaning, you can do what you want. It was all about liberation, getting free, in other words. And he goes on to say, I, I, it was an erotic revolt. I just wanted to be able to sleep with who I wanted. I didn't want this system of morality imposed on me. So although when you read his works, they sound incredibly intellectual, when he was interviewed, he admitted incredibly, I, I just don't want to be told what to do. And the academic questions followed afterwards. In other words, the problem was the heart, not the head, but the head tried to justify what the heart didn't want to believe. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, can I just ask you to, to look honestly at yourself? What is the problem? Is it the evidence? Have you really looked at Jesus carefully and found just too many flaws? Or is it there are things he says that you just don't like? But just because you don't like something doesn't mean it's not true. I hesitate to use the illustration, but um, whilst, whilst um, Donald Trump was president, you, you'd see people walking around with, with, with signs saying, not my president. And the thing is, he was their president. You might not like him, but it doesn't stop being true. You might not like Boris Johnson, but he is your prime minister. You might not like the queen for some reason, but she just is your queen. Uh, whether something fits my tastes or not has nothing to do with the truth. The problem for these religious leaders wasn't evidence, but the fact they did not want anyone in authority over them. And let's not pretend this is just a problem for those uh, who, who wouldn't call themselves Christians. Uh, even if you've started following Jesus, um, this same dynamic remains. We don't want him to have total control over our lives. We don't want him to challenge us. I don't normally quote too many people uh, in sermons, so apologies for a second uh, in a row. Uh, but another a, a Christian philosopher, um, Kierkegaard, said this, the Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we're obliged to act accordingly. Isn't that right? Like, there are hard bits of the Bible. I was talking with someone, I can't remember who now, even just earlier this week. There, there are parts you know, where, where Peter says, so Paul's letters are quite hard to understand. Of course there are hard things in the Bible. It's not what God's getting at. But a lot of the time it is very clear. Think, and we complicate it because we don't want to obey. Isn't that right? 
And that's particularly the case when it gets to the heart, when our religion is threatened. What is the dominant religion of the UK at the moment? No, it's not Christianity, is it? It's not Islam, it's not Buddhism, Sikhism, Judaism, Hinduism. It's the religion of self, isn't it? You do what you want. You must do what you think makes you happy. And the supreme sign of that is sex. You can sleep with who you want. No one has the right to tell you what to do with your body. You must be true, not some standard out there, some rules out there, but true to what comes from within. And Jesus challenges that, and we hate it. Again, whether we call ourselves Christians or not, we absolutely hate it. We want to be able to do what comes from within. Surely that's what true humanity is, just being myself, following my desires. How dare you, Jesus, say there's something wrong with our way of life? But there's something wrong with all our ways of life. Uh, within the church, we've got, a, I don't mean this congregation specifically, but the church in general, we've got a massive problem because we behave like the religious leaders. Uh, see, what do they do? <laughs> what do they do when Jesus puts them on these horns of this dilemma? They discuss. And what's their answer? Verse 27. Oh, sorry, verse 26. No, it is 27. We don't know. They don't, they don't oppose him. They don't come out and say, no, Jesus, you're not the Messiah. We are going to ignore you. Neither do they say, yes, Jesus, we're going to bow before you. Our bad. They, they remain agnostic. Sort of, sort of neutral. Well, you know, we're, we're, not going to, we're not going to commit ourselves one way or another. One of the great ways to ignore Jesus' teaching is to pretend it's not clear. You're awaiting further light. And so you just keep discussing it. That is particularly the case in the church on matters of sexuality. Uh, you will know, I'm sure, churches, denominations, whatever, where when questions of whether it's okay to sleep with anyone we want, whether our gender matters, whether even is such a thing as gender come up, they very rarely come out and commit to a position that is clearly against the Bible's position. The Bible's teaching is not that difficult to understand. Okay, you give, give the Bible to, to most people, doesn't matter if they're Christians or not, it's pretty clear that sex is a good gift, that marriage is male-female, that it's meant to be monogamous, you don't need a huge sort of theology degree to understand that. Jesus' teaching is, is pretty clear. He's taught on that even just a chapter or two earlier in Matthew. It's not difficult to understand, but we don't like it. And so what do we do as, as Christians, as churches? We serve committees to discuss it. We talk about it. And the key thing is to never end the conversation. Because to end the conversation means you're going to have to get off the fence. But as long as I keep talking, I can pretend I'm not against but I never actually come out for his teaching either. You see this all the time. It's a polite way of disobeying. It's a very English way of disobeying. Just keep talking. Let's just, let's just hear more from all sides. And If Jesus is king and he rules us through his word, there really is no discussion. We're people under authority. So let me ask that question again. What is not clear? If you look at your own life, you will probably be able to see areas of your life. We, ought to, we all ought to be able to see areas of our life where what, what I'm doing or saying or thinking or feeling or desiring is not what it ought to be. Okay, it's out of line with what Jesus King says ought to be the case. Are you trying to muddy the waters in order to get off the hook? Or are you just trying to sort of ignore Jesus? 
has come with authority. His word is clear. What area of your life does it need? Well, does it need to start changing, shaping, challenging? Even if it bites at what we feel is our very identity, if we're under his authority, then there is no choice. We are not masters of our own soul, masters of our own fate, captains of our own ship. We are people under the authority of God who's come to earth. What's not clear? A second question as we wrap up. Uh, What's so scary about grace? What's so scary about grace? Jesus moves straight into this parable. If you're not going to answer me, I'm not going to answer you, he says. But what do you think? Verse 28. And then the parable is of the two sons. The father asks the sons to go into the vineyard and work. That is a kind invitation, by the way. This isn't some sort of like, can you go and weed the garden, some sort of back-breaking work. A vineyard meant the, the father must be pretty wealthy. This is pretty cool to come and join the family business. And working in a vineyard would be a good invitation. It's going to lead to blessing and wealth and all the rest. And the first son says, oh, uh, father, I'm not going to. But then he changes his mind and does it. The second son says, of course I will, sir. Oh, yes, I will, Lord. But then doesn't go and work. And so Jesus poses another question. Which did the will of his father? And the religious teachers get the answer right. The first, they say, Jesus says, truly, amen, literally, amen. But then he applies it to the two groups. These two sons are the two groups of people. It's Jesus. Uh, the first son, who said, no, I'm not going to go, but then did, is represented by the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Um, at first sight, it looks like tax collectors and prostitutes couldn't be further from being citizens in Jesus' kingdom, being subjects of Jesus' king. Because clearly, Jesus is not in favour of prostitution or, well, tax collecting. Tax collecting not as just paying your taxes, that's a good thing. But tax collectors in these days were essentially extorting money. Okay, think of sort of loan sharks nowadays, the kind of people who, who prey on the poor and take everything from them. Okay, these are nasty pieces of work. We kind of baptise them and think, you know, oh, they're just fun sinners kind of thing. But no, these would be nasty pieces of work, exploiting their own people. Preying on the vulnerable. So as they live their lives, it doesn't look like they're citizens of the kingdom. And yet, when John the Baptist turns up, verse 32, preaching, and of course when Jesus turns up, they flock to him, they believe him. And so they find salvation. They find mercy, they find grace. And they love to come into the kingdom. Uh, They are, in other words, the first son who who initially says no, but then actually does do what the father wants. And what is it the father wants, particularly in in the context of Matthew 21? It's to come to Jesus as Lord and Saviour, as King and Saviour. The the prostitutes attack like to do that. Whereas the the religious leaders, the priests, the elders, uh, they're all taught. They say, yes, 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 yes. But they won't come to Jesus. It's not they're not well behaved or it's not a parable, I, I think, primarily about asking ourselves the hard questions, am I really fully obeying Jesus? Uh, rather, it's a parable that asks us, are we, are we doing what the Father wants, which is to come to Jesus as Saviour and Lord. To believe, in other words. Three times in verse 32, that word comes, believe, believe, believe. The tax collectors, the Pharisees, believed. And therefore they enter the kingdom. 
That's an incredible thing. Look at the prostitutes. Think how many people they've slept with. And suddenly they see that God has come to earth and is willing to, to eat with them, wants to be friends with them, wants them in his kingdom. That the shame we can feel about our past, he's willing to forgive. And so of course they flock in. They know they're not doing right, but they come and find grace. The tax collectors likewise, exploiting their own people. And yet, when God comes to earth, he doesn't just smash them off the face of the planet. He offers them mercy and they're bowled over. And so they come in. But the religious people, the religious people who say, there's nothing wrong with me. I don't need a saviour. I don't need someone to forgive me. They're furious at Jesus. And so although they will say to God, I, you know, I love you, I worship you, they don't want anything to do with being forgiven, rescued, Jesus as saviour and Lord. It's often the case. The more you feel there's nothing wrong with you, you don't need saving, the more you'll hate Jesus. And actually the more you'll disobey him. The more you realise that he is full of grace and mercy, the more you realise that you need forgiving, uh, not just for what you do, but for even your very desires. And the more you see that he is willing to forgive, even those very desires, as well as those actions and thoughts, the more actually you're happy to come under his kingship because he's safe and good. He knows what's best. He's kind. He will be a better captain of my ship than I would be. I'm safer following him than I am following my own heart. He is better than me, kinder than me, more gracious than me, and is therefore also wiser than me. Grace is scary. It's scary because it means giving up all control. To be saved by grace alone is to be saved by God alone. To say, look, I can't save myself, Lord, you need to do everything. It is a total giving up of authority. I don't have the authority to get me into heaven. I don't have the ability to get me into heaven. Everything, you're going to have to have all authority to save me and therefore to rule over me. I just give myself up to you, God. And that can feel very scary unless you see his character. So for a Pharisee or a religious leader, grace, the idea of Jesus coming as saviour, the idea of crying out to him, Hosanna, save me, is too scary. I'm not going near. I want to rule my own life. I'm not letting anyone in charge of me. And therefore, I daren't ask for forgiveness. But for those who know, those who know they need mercy, then it's the easiest thing in the world to say, Lord, be my king as well. It's often the case uh, that those uh, who reject the gospel of, of grace are some of the most legalistic, judgmental people you'll ever come across. We know there's something wrong with us. And so if we don't go to the solution of grace, Jesus living for us and dying for us and, and offering us free eternal life, well, we have to cover up that problem within us by, by doing something. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be better, whether it's in a religious way, through a formal religion like Christianity or Islam or whatever, or whether it's in a secular way. Look at me, I'm a good person. Look how I recycle. Look at my rainbow lanyard. I look how you know, woke and open I am, whatever it might be. It's all about showing how good I am and very quickly how terrible those other people are who don't join me in my beliefs. If 
you reject grace, you will end up incredibly judgmental. But if you accept it, then you have no grounds to judge anybody. It should make you the most humble people on earth, quickest to forgive, gentlest with those who disagree with you. And all of this comes simply from accepting Jesus who he is, the saviour, the king who rode in on a donkey, both to rule, but also to rescue. So ask yourself this morning, not just what areas of my life am I refusing to bring under his lordship? Where, when Jesus has spoken clearly, am I trying to muddy the waters and pretend he hasn't spoken or it's not clear? But also ask yourself, am I really, have I really trusted him alone for my salvation? Have I really seen how gracious he is? How merciful he is. How willing he is to have me if I'll just come. Because when you do, and you come to a saviour, then you'll find that increasingly you're able to delight in him, not just as saviour, but in Lord as well. Let's pray that he works that within us as a church. Father in heaven, we uh, confess that we are, in many ways, like both these sons in the parable, Uh, At times we say uh, we will come to Christ and we will come to him for mercy. We'll take him as saviour and Lord and then we drift away. At other times we uh, hear him speaking clearly his word and we just ignore him straight away. We pray in your mercy uh, that you be kind to us. Pour your spirit on us. Uh, Make us people who when we hear, we obey with delight. And so all the more, Father, we pray that you would show us uh, that your son has come to earth. Uh, to rescue, that he's come full of grace. Father, transform us, we pray, by the power of your spirit. Amen.